I'm Dave Cornway. And I'm Ryan Hasman. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're also joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey. We're recording this episode on March 18th, 2018. It's the day after St. Patrick's Day. How's the hangover, gentlemen? Uh, I feel fine. I Actually, I'm just sick. Yeah, I'm too old for St. Patrick's Day to be anything other than a normal day. Leanne and I watched Spider-Man Homecoming. A, a great St. Patrick's Day tradition. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And we got to bed fairly early, so rough night. No hangover. How happy the, uh, the 17th of Ireland. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about the first week of the legislative session in Alberta. Lots of talk here about pipelines and the carbon tax, Derek Fildebrandt's attempt to remain relevant in Alberta politics, Brian Jean's resignation and departure from Alberta politics, and alas, Ryan's favorite topic, the Alberta Party. A few episodes ago, we talked about Ontario politics trying to out-crazy Alberta politics, and it looks like they've just succeeded with the election of Doug Ford as the leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. So we'll dig into that a little bit. And Ryan will share some political wisdom in our So You Want to Be a Candidate segment. We'll respond to some listener questions, and we'll get into some political gossip as well. But before any of that, we have a bit of special news to share. Not only are we the Dave Berta Podcast, but we're now the Dave Berta Podcast, proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. We've arrived. Congratulations. Thank you for accepting us into your group. We appreciate it. Okay, let's talk uh, some political gossip. So I don't have a, t- a whole lot this week. I know that Mike Lake on the federal side, his nomination was yesterday in the riding of Edmonton Metasquin, and I understand he earned over something like 88 or 87% support among the party membership. And there were two more, uh, two other uh, nomination race, federal nomination races that are that are underway. Uh, Yellowhead, the riding west of Edmonton, uh, which Jim Eglinski, the member, the conservative incumbent, was being challenged, and I believe he's announced he's not going to run, run for re-election, so he's not in the race anymore. Uh, and in Calgary, uh, a big race in, I think it's the Calgary Forest Lawn riding where Deepak O'Brien who's been the member of parliament uh, in East Calgary for, I think, more than 20 years now, uh, is being challenged by Mo Amory, who is a former MLA for Calgary East. And Mo Amory was an MLA for, I think, 25 years until he was defeated in the 2015 election. So that'll, that's supposed to be a pretty, uh, a pretty heated race. You have two longtime politicians from East Calgary running, uh, running for the conservative nomination in that riding. Um, provincially, there's been some really interesting shuffles going on with the redistribution of provincial political boundaries going into the next provincial election. Probably the most high-profile uh, um, shuffle that we've seen this week was uh, Joe Sisi, uh, Alberta's finance minister, his decision to that he announced he's going to run in Calgary, Buffalo, uh, which is kind of a downtown riding. Now, Joe Sisi currently represents Calgary Fort, which no longer exists after the redistribution. It's been uh, redrawn and moved further to the southeast of Calgary, um, which is not friendly NDP territory. Even even when the NDP had their wave in 2015, I think it takes in the new Calgary Pagan riding takes in big chunks of Rick McIver's current current district. Uh, so Joe Cece, um currently lives in a neighborhood that's been redrawn into the Calgary Buffalo district. Um, so Cece announced that he's going to be running in Calgary Buffalo, uh, which I think is friendly. Could you know it's easy to easy it's, it's relatively easy to describe that as much friendlier NDP territory, at least 
less friendly conservative territory. Uh, and Kathleen Ganley, who's currently the, M- the NDP MLA for Calgary Buffalo, is hopping across the river to run for re-election in Calgary Mountain View, which is currently represented by Liberal leader David Swan, who's serving his fourth term as the MLA for Calgary Mountain View, and has announced that's the same day that he uh, he's not going to run for re-election. So that'll be an open seat. I think in terms of those two ridings, I think Calgary Buffalo, I mean, it, it's the riding, the new district, it's the riding that CC lives in, so it makes sense for him to run there. It's the riding that area that he represented on Calgary City Council when he was an alderman, uh, and it's also a safer seat than the, the how the rest of his district was redrawn. It is kind of odd to see Kathleen Ganley hop across the river and yeah. run Mountain View, though. Well, and she's not only an MLA, she's also a minister of justice. Exactly, of so, two senior cabinet ministers. Right, yielding, looks like one of them yielding to the other. Um, also interesting that it's all tied to David Swan not running. So I think it shows maybe that they can read the tea leaves and know that some writings are less safe than others. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think they're they're looking at a lot of the same polling and that uh, that that we do. And I think that um, when you take in the kind of historical voting patterns of Calgary Buffalo, which I think in the, I, I figured out in eight eight of the past ten elections, it, it voted for a Liberal or a New Democrat MLA and Calgary Mountain View, which. Um, doesn't have as uh, was represented by a conservative in in the in the 90s and and the early 2000s, but was NDP in the 1980s and has elected uh, Dr. David Swan since 2004. So definitely much friendlier territory for the NDP. Uh, the other question in, in this is where is uh, where is Liberal leader David Kahn going to run? I mean, right. will he run in he ran in Calgary Buffalo in the last election? He placed a strong third. Um, but the, now, now that Calgary Mountain View's opened up, you know that could be a tempting seat for him to run in. Sorry, he, he ran against Jason Kenney in that by-election. Is that the one you're referring to? Well, you no, know, I'm talking about the 2015 election. He ran against Kathleen Ganley because he was third in the by-election as well. Yeah. in Lougheed. Yeah, yeah, and then he ran in the in the by-election in Lougheed as well. And he stated, I believe, that he won't be running in the Fort McMurray by-election or the Innisfil Sylvan Lake one. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, he's a Calgary-based lawyer. He's Calgarian. I, I would be kind of might be kind of odd for him to decide to run in another district outside of the city. Speaking of Calgary-based lawyers, I was very pleased to hear the news that Doug Schweitzer has announced he is running for a UCP nomination in Calgary Elbow. Yeah, Allison Redford's old seat, uh, Ralph Klein's old seat, and Greg Clark's seat. And Greg Clark's seat. No, I noticed. You know, and it's funny. Everything is relative. Everything changes. How you feel about things depends on where you stand. I saw more than a little bit of entitlement and indignation about this from our Alberta party friends that how dare Schweitzer run in Greg Clark's seat? What a jerk. What a jerk move. How, First, how dare one conservative run against another conservative? Well, I wouldn't say that, but we're getting into that <laughs> later. It's pretty funny that the party, and here we are again, I just can't help myself, but the party that's about doing politics differently seems to be saying that there's some sort of entitlement to that seat, that a strong UCP candidate, a star candidate, shouldn't run there? Like, So what are you saying? You're either saying that you're not viable to hold the seat or that somehow you own it? It's very uh, cynical. It's a very cynical view of something. I mean, if I was them, I would signify strength. If I was Greg, I would say, great, look forward to seeing you on the hustings. I think he actually did. I think Greg Clark sent out a tweet saying... You know, looking forward to uh, to a good debate with you, uh, Doug Schweitzer. So I think I think in in terms of at least Greg Clark, I think he's a pretty classy guy in terms of yeah. that. I, I feel like the Alberta Party is going to spend most of its time getting really upset that no one's playing politics by the rules they want them to play by, 
if you want to be if you want to get gain ground you have to play the game that's already being played you can't yeah, yeah. show up with another set of rules and say okay guys this is how we're doing it from now on and, and welcome to the nfl yeah exactly I mean, calgary elbow is the seat where ralph klein held allison redford held to suggest that the mainstream conservative party in this province isn't going to throw its weight into that seat is unrealistic now on doug schweitzer i'm very very excited about this um i followed him through the leadership race i got to know him a little bit i really liked what he was talking about some of the new blue stuff he's not that much older than we are uh, he's a very impressive guy i don't know what managing directors at denton's make but i'm sure it's more than mla's so he's sacrificing quite a bit to to serve and so uh, i hope he wins his nomination and i'll be looking forward to him playing a really big role in the cabinet if we win if they win we. Or, or in the official opposition. Or in the official opposition. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of managing directors at Denton's give it all up to serve in the opposition. That's that's the dream of Alberta Thanks. politics. <laughs> uh, another interesting nomination race. Uh, this week, it appears that two UCP MLAs in Northeast Alberta are running against each other for a nomination in the same riding. This that's is uh, a result of, I think, a result of redistricting. Beauty of uh, beautiful... Bonneville. Yeah, Bonneville, Cold Lake, St. Paul, which is the new district. Now, now, Scott Sear, who's the current MLA for Bonneville, Cold Lake, and David Hansen, who's the current MLA for, I'm going to see if I get this right, Lac Labiche, St. Paul, Two Hills. Yeah, it's almost like those Quebec ridings where there's just like a string of like city names. names. Yeah. yeah. Um, they both announced they're going to run in Bonneville, Cold Lake, St. Paul. Um, for those of you who are familiar with the redistricting that happened um, there's now one less seat in that area, in that area of the province. So there's going to be a few, sh- a bit of shuffling going around with incumbent MLAs trying to figure out where they're going to run in the next election if they decide to run. But this is the first case that I could remember for a long time, at least. Um, I struggled to think of another another case uh, where two incumbent MLAs were running for the party nomination, uh, for the same party nomination in the same district against each other. Maybe, maybe our listeners can uh, can send us some feedback if they can think of other cases in Alberta. But um, yeah, I, if, I, if you can't think of it, Dave, it probably has not happened. Yeah, there, now there's cases of two incumbent MLAs from different parties running against each other. It's rare. Or, or um, of senior male cabinet ministers pushing out junior female cabinet ministers from Calgary nominations. Well, or, or one senior too. cabinet minister pushing out another senior cabinet minister. Or, or one, one taking one for the team and deciding to run in a different district. Listeners of this podcast may remember Scott Sear as one of the most vocal critics of Brian Jean, uh, former Wildrose Party leader and now former UCP MLA. Uh, during the UCP leadership race, um, Scott Sear was a, was a huge critic of Brian Jean around uh, spending and uh, the deficit budget, the, the huge deficit budget that the UCP were running in their caucus as a result of, uh, of decisions that were made uh, during the wild, when the while the wild, wild rose caucus was in existence, so that's kind of a background uh, on on uh, on one of the MLAs that's running for this nomination. So my piece of gossip, Dave, is that a fairly highly placed conservative source who comes from you know having a lot of connections, ra- rather credible, has asked me, while well, he stated to me that he's heard from multiple people that Dave Cornier is considering running for a nomination for the NDP in the 2019 season. Is that true, Dave? Yes, and I'm going to be his campaign manager. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Thanks for volunteering, Adam. <laughs> well, well, that's really interesting news, Ryan, that, uh, that your highly placed source in, uh, in Calgary has, uh, has found. I'm, I'm very flattered. Um, I currently live in the Edmonton Highlands Norwood district, great part of the city in Edmonton. 
Um, and the district is currently represented by Brian Mason, who's been the NDP MLA there for the past 17, 18, 19 years. Uh, and I can confirm with you that as of today, March 18th, 2018, I have no plans on running for election in the next election. My, so. my desire to volunteer for you was, was it's short-lived. I'll, I'll help you look after Ben. How about that? That sounds great. Yeah. yeah. I need well, a babysitter every now and then. Considering we're a bunch of podcasters, you should probably be running for the Alberta party instead. <laughs> oh. Well, one of the things that we say, at least in my friends group, is that if the UCP is winning 86 seats out of 87, that one might still be NDP. That one in Edmonton, Strathcona, you know, those are bedrock. In fact, literally at one point, they only had those two. Yeah. Yeah. So those are as safe as it gets. I would imagine that if um, Mr. Mason does decide to retire, I'd imagine it's going to be a pretty hotly contested NDP nomination. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. ask a serious question about that. Is Do we know, is Brian Mason actually considering retiring? Have we heard anything like that? I, I don't believe he's made any announcements. I mean, there's rumors, uh, but I don't know how much truth there is. Um, you know, the NDP actually in the in the Highlands Norwood district actually held a fundraiser across the street from my house yesterday. They oh, had of a, course they did. Yeah. Well, I, I, I held at the uh, at the Thistle Curling Club in Bellevue and uh, and I didn't go. Uh, but uh, but I hear it was well attended and they they expect they raised a lot of money and they're gearing up for the next election. Now, I don't know, Brian Mason, but looking at his career, at his relative age, at kind of the the tea leaves of what might happen in the next election, it wouldn't surprise me if he decided to move on. Um, I think it's if he does, he has nothing to be ashamed of. He can hey, hold his head high. He's like you said, he's represented that district for almost 20 years. And so, uh, he was on Edmonton City Council before that. So he's a, had a long, very successful political career in Edmonton. So uh, I, I expect if he does announce he's, uh, you know, when, when he does announce his plans, uh, we'll definitely talk about it because it'll be interesting nomination news. Or maybe he'll come on the show. So the legislative session started in full this week. Uh, we had the speech from the throne the week before, and this week started off uh, with a, a lot of debate on uh, and focus on a pipeline motion. Now, Premier Rachel Notley introduced a motion to the legislature, and, and for those of you who aren't too familiar with this, a motion is a motion is not a bill. A bill is something that is a piece of legislation that becomes law. Uh, a motion is essentially um, something that is put before the legislature and asked, MLAs are asked to endorse and then urge the government to take action on certain certain issues. So um, I have, have it uh, right here. Motions are more symbolic. Yeah. They are often done in you know situations where there's a statement looking to be made. I remember when McLean's ran its piece on the state of government corruption in Quebec. Must be almost a decade ago, at least seven or eight years ago. The assembly in Quebec City passed a unanimous motion saying that it was completely inappropriate. So these are not binding things, but they're political things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and typically in a legislative session, there are a dozen or more motions that actually get debated. This one is the most high profile. Just, to, just before we get into the pipeline motion, um, one of the most interesting motions that I had uh, a role, play to, role to play with was back in about 2008, um, when I, I did some work for Kevin Taft when he was leader of the official opposition on the motion to adopt rodeo as Alberta's official sport. And the motion was passed by the legislature, but unfortunately the government, the following progressive conservative government and the NDP government have not actually implemented legislation making rodeo Alberta's official sport, which I think is a huge missed opportunity for any Alberta government. I would love to ask Dr. Swan and Mr. Khan if they still endorse that. I suppose that they would not. That's, that's a top of mind question for when we get a chance to talk with them. 
So the pipeline motion that was introduced by Notley and that, le- and that MLA spent quite a bit of time debating, uh, even though all of them endorsed it, um, at least 70 of, the, 70 of the 87 MLAs who were in the legislature at the time, it was, it was a unanimous endorsement of the motion. It was uh, on, the, on the topic of pipelines, and I think it really play, had three real, um, there were three real goals of the motion. I mean, I think first uh, was uh, targeted to Albertans, and this was really... Uh, trying to Rachel Notley trying to preserve the narrative that she is the pipeline champion for Alberta. I think she came out really strong this spring. Uh, and this motion was really trying to extend that, um, extend that narrative. The second part of the, the second point of the motion was to put pressure on the government of British Columbia, John Horgan's NDP government, uh, who is opposing, who are opposing the construction of Kinder Morgan's trans Canada pipeline. Uh, and thirdly, it was to put pressure on the federal government to put pressure on British Columbia. And a lot of this discussion we're having now about what the Alberta government can do, uh, to put pressure on BC. There's really not a ton that the Alberta government can effectively do without hurting us hurting Alberta, uh, to put pressure on BC, but the, where, who can put real pressure on British Columbia, the British Columbia government, is the federal government. And we've seen some signs that they're working behind the scenes a little bit. Uh, uh, well, they're working behind the scenes to put pressure on the BC government uh, to, to stop their opposition to the pipeline expansion. Uh, but this is really trying to, trying to put more pressure on the feds to, uh, to pressure BC. Yeah, and the cliche, which remains true, is that all politics is local. So the motivation for everything that is going to happen on this topic for the next 12 months is is about the next election. The provincial government isn't the one who's actually going to build the pipeline either. Yeah. But it's really important as Rachel Notley starts to build the case for re-election that she be seen as the person who stands for Alberta's interests. She, I mean, again, if the NDP are the ones saying it, you realize how important it is. Nixon goes to China, the NDP support the pipeline. It's very fascinating to watch them try to outdo each other in terms of this, you know, Captain Alberta routine, which I do agree with. It would be fascinating to have been a fly on the wall at the caucus meeting when they discussed this motion, because I, you know, I maintain there's no way this has unanimous support within the caucus. But she's a strong enough leader or has enough capital that her caucus is going along. So it'll be really interesting. And should the UCP form the next government? and they ran that motion in the House again, it'd be fascinating to watch if it was unanimous. I'm going to guess no. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see. I think, I mean, Rachel Notley, in terms of the, in terms of the NDP caucus, I mean, I'm sure there's, there was some difference of opinion on, on whether, to support, whether to support the pipeline to begin with, but uh, I think she really has. I mean, we've, we've talked, I think we've talked about it on the podcast before. I mean, the NDP have been extraordinary in enforcing caucus discipline uh, over the past three years, uh, and I, I really think that, a lot of MLAs, or most of them, really NDP MLAs, really understand, or, or or were made to understand that they were elected because of Rachel Notley. Yeah, that she really drove the more NDP than, campaign more than usual. Absolutely. that's always true. Yeah. Well, and the one, I guess, the exception that makes the rule is this week we saw Darren Dillis make his comment of calling the NDP government a bunch of poop heads, and. <laughs> I don't want to get too conspiratorial. The, the BC NDP government. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I don't want to be too much of a conspiracy guy, but something tells me either he wasn't really in that much trouble for saying that or he was borderline saying it on purpose. It it felt like a well-placed comment that would whip that would that would please certainly Albertans in favor of the pipeline if not UCP members, but I I think there are most people who are like come on BC get your shit together. We're like, "Huh." This is awesome. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think I think it tapped into and tapped into a frustration that a lot of Albertans feel, and, absolutely, and that I mean that I think the NDP government in Alberta feels about well, and, this and, particular issue with the BC NDP. 
and we're going to get to this later, but every once in a while, politics breaks that fourth wall where they actually talk like normal people talk. And <laughs> I assure you, if we went to the Flying J over at the Yellowhead and had some coffee and talked to people around there, that sort of comment would be a lot more common than it is in the precinct of the legislature. Yeah. Uh, similar to that note or continuing that thought, I have this observation and I think it reflects on not only Jason Kenney and Rachel Notley, but maybe even Doug Ford. And it's just a reminder again that the way that we, the types of people who do a podcast about politics, the type of people who listen to a podcast about politics, the way we feel about politicians is not necessarily the way that regular voters feel. So this week, an episode which really doesn't move the needle. It's not really that important. But Jason Kenney tweeted about decorum in the House. And within a few minutes, MLA Thomas Dang, I believe he's Edmonton Rutherford, Edmonton Southwest. Sorry, Edmonton Southwest. Basically just instinctively attacked him. And now I get it. I know how the NDP feel about Jason Kenney. I know that he's like the red flag that makes the bull snort. And, but it was very odd because Jason had literally tweeted about decorum. And Thomas, who I actually gather is kind of a nice guy. He's a young, progressive, um, certainly you know, youthful, full of energy, positive guy, usually, just attacked him. He's like, well, you want to take us back to the 50s anyway. And and then he made some comment about, and don't you know that thumping the desk is Westminster um, tradition? Well, the thing about it is, other than maybe my co-host Dave, I can't think of someone who's a bigger nerd about history or a fan of history than Jason Kenney. So some of us watching this were like, what is Thomas doing? Like, you can argue about a lot of things, but trying to argue with Jason Kenney about that is just... Silly, but more importantly, Jason Kenney makes them crazy. And I actually mean crazy, like lose their judgment crazy. They clearly loathe him, loathe him. And I, you know, there's politicians that do this to me too. One of them made fun of electricians and I just lose it when she says things. But you have to realize that's not how people feel about Jason Kenney. People may be unsure. They may oppose him. Some segment of the population feels that way about him for sure. But clearly he lives in their head and he owns so much real estate that they're just beside themselves. He's the hive. It's like it's like a rock hit the beehive and the bees are just so angry. And I don't think it's a good look for them. I don't think it's a good look for Thomas Dang. I, it's not a rock that hit the beehive. It was like a gust of wind. I agree with you that the the reaction to that kind of thing is is over the top. And it does feel like they're flailing a little bit. They just, they kind of need to get their, the NDP needs to get its shit together and choose the battles they want to fight Jason Kenny on because there are going to be an awful lot of them. And decorum in question period is the most inside, inside baseball you can get. Well, he wasn't even attacking that. It, well, yeah. And, he and was then, just attacking him for being a 1950s icon, which, so their feeling of him is that he is some sort of Trump figure. And he's not. So, and I've said this on Twitter a few times lately, a political contrast or a political attack has to have a grain of truth to it. So there are things you can hit Jason Kenney on, of course. But just this general Trump comparison is so poorly thought through. Well, I, I don't disagree with you on that, but I do think the sentiment that Thomas Dang was trying to convey that Jason Kenney's policies will knock us back several decades. I think that does resonate with the NDP base for sure. I liked when the pre well, I shouldn't say I like. I thought it was effective when the premier talked about bringing us back to the 90s. 
because that's a really interesting judo move on the whole Klein, the whole Alberta advantage. You know, a lot of us on the conservative side look at the Klein ears with rose-colored cl- glasses for sure. I've posted on my own Twitter that picture of Sign holding up the paid-in-full debt thing. So I thought that that was effective when she talks about the 90s. So I think you're onto something there. But he was just so gutturally loathing. I don't know if those are both. There's something totally unbecoming uh, of about MLAs getting into like pissing matches on Twitter. I, I really, I really despise it, and it's. I think it's such a waste of time. Or, if, or in the house last year, if you recall, with Derek and Michael Connolly in the house. Apparently, they almost came to blows last year. So yeah, and I can understand like passions get heated, and 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 you get caught up in the moment when you're in debates, and and if there's you know split split ideological divisions, and and uh, MLAs are trying to trying to trying to. Uh, get other MLAs to, uh, you know, to, to mess up or, or basically trying to, trying to screw them up. I can get, I, I get that when you're physically together in, in, in on the floor of the legislature, how it can become heated. But, but on, I don't know. I just don't really find that there's any real excuse on Twitter that, well, and I will say too, that it works the other way as well. You know, there are a lot of people who think that essentially Rachel Notley's government is, is illegitimate, that they had no right to govern. They really shouldn't have won. You hear all these things. And again, I think partisans on the right think that Albertans feel the same way or assume that Albertans feel the same way about Rachel Notley that they do. And it's not true. Clearly, she has some support. I think we need to take her very seriously and and focus on the policy, focus on why she's there and provide an alternative. And so I'm not saying it's just them doing it. It's both sides. But the politicos and the people who listen to podcasts and who get into it are fights. You just forget that most people are busy leading their lives, working at their jobs. And so we talked earlier about some of the language you might hear at the Flying J. So that's also true. But they just don't necessarily feel the same way. They feel differently. They feel passionately. But they may not have made up their mind about these politicians the same way we did. And I will just say this, and I know we've we've banged this drum on this show a lot. I don't know a lot of people who walk away from having an argument on Twitter saying, that was a terrific use of my time. So, you know, whether whether it's Thomas Dang or Sandra Jansen, or anyone else, you guys need to stop and pay attention to what's actually going to move the needle, and it's not arguing on Twitter. Yeah, every time you want to argue, argue on Twitter, go knock on a door in your constituency exactly. instead. That's exactly. probably a better use of your time. Talk to an actual voter. Yeah, and I'm going to get to that later, but I think that that's something politicians should do every day. They should talk to real voters, because that'll keep them grounded. That'll remind them of what issues are top of mind. To regular people. It's funny how I just gave that advice and I I didn't take it because the, the other day, the other day, Derek Fildebrandt was tweeting about uh, the NDP legislating buffer zones around abortion clinics. And I said, <laughs> I quote retweeted him and said, while we're at it, something like, while we're at it, can't the NDP legislate buffer zones for disgraced morons from entering the legislature? And so two things. One, I'm an idiot because I engaged I was just, the, he annoys me so much. I never yeah. have experienced such visceral rage. He's Seems, the Sean Avery of the Alberta legislature. <laughs> yes, exactly. Asatikinen. Now, in my defense, I will argue that I was punching up. I wasn't punching down. Or or, or wow. maybe I wasn't. But I you know. are Adam Rosenberg. <laughs> You're not just random big Bingo fuel. On anyway. Yeah. I'll just conclude this. But that's how tempting it is. It's hard. It is really hard. And We've I, all, oh, I don't know if Dave has, but I do it all the time. And I felt like an idiot afterwards. I mean, like, I, you know, I have a job. I represent certain, you know, characteristics. Aren't you a digital strategist? Yeah, I don't want to be known as like the curmudgeon <laughs> yelling at politicians on Twitter. But I will, I will say this. 
it was deeply satisfying, so I understand it. And now I'm be- I've been blocked by Derek Feldebrandt. So, you know, mission accomplished. I'm standing on the deck of an aircraft carrier in front of that sign that says mission accomplished. Well, so <laughs> watching Derek sort of reemerge, he's really going back to his comfort zone. I mean, he really is an opposition Canadian Taxpayer Federation kind of guy. And often with the CTF, although some may or may not like his approach, he often made valid points. Like they, their style may not be for everybody, but it is an important role in a democracy to have that, that critic from the right on behalf of the taxpayers. It may not be my cup of tea, but I think everyone's stronger for it. And so Derek doing this kind of thing is really Derek going back to what made him Derek Fildebrand in the first place. It's a comfort zone for him. I think we, we the UCP, would be foolish to just completely disregard his chances of holding a seat. It's possible that he could. And if he's going to play a role in the next legislature, doing what he's doing now is the role he's going to have. Yeah, and, and just talking about his, his kind of reemergence on the political scene after he was he was kicked out of the UCP caucus, he's put forward a motion. He said he's going to put forward a motion calling for MLAs to take, I think, a 5% rollback in salary. Uh, which I think will Classic be CTF. Yeah, which is I mean, it's this is a Canadian Taxpayers Federation stunt. This is what they do, uh, and uh, and I mean, he's he's very effective at getting attention. Um, uh, and I, you know, maybe that was probably maybe that was part of the problem in 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 the UCP caucus, staying right. in a disciplined official opposition caucus. Yeah, um, we're but, not just fighting for attention at all times, but you're yielding it to your colleagues. Yeah, and 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 I think his reemergence on the political scene, I mean, does raise the question: Is he going? Is he considering running as an independent in yeah. uh, in the new Strathmore Chestermere riding against uh, Leela here, who's the UCP MLA for for that area, and and uh, is going to run in that uh, in that district yeah i don't know if he is but he's certainly positioning himself to yeah and this type of thing again to repeat the cliche while i do think derek has a larger point it is always about local politics and so now the conservatives both in his riding and really the caucus had to choose well are we really going to oppose this thing it's a different decision now thankfully for them or maybe not thankfully maybe that's cynical of me to say the ndp government there was no way that thing was going to pass so it's okay but Derek still at a nomination, or I guess it's too late for a nomination, at a candidate debate in the riding, is going to hold that episode up and say, I wanted to do this, and Leela, you refused to go along. You know, so he's putting pressure on them to be principled conservatives, or the, at least the way he views them. I, 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 I probably disagree with Derek Fildebrandt on probably about 99% of, of political issues, but I think it's just absolutely fantastic that he's going to be a thorn in, in Jason Kenney's side for at least for the next year until the next election. I say, uh, g- you know, all the power to you, Derek, in that in that district. Have fun. <laughs> well, just go for it. Go for it. Yeah, I, I appreciate both what you're saying and the humor of it. But even from his point of view, his most effective way of being a thorn is to focus on things that are principled conservative principles. So, you know, if he's a thorn in the side on personal stuff or on silly things, it won't be as as painful. But if he actually does hold the gov- the UCP party to account from a conservative point of view, um, yeah, it's going to be annoying. And uh, he'll be effective. Like, what is that proverb that was in the body shop stores for a while? Something about if you doubt the effectiveness of a small person, you've never had a mosquito in your tent or something like that. Do you, you recall so what I'm getting D- at? Derek Fildebrandt is the mosquito in Jason Kenney's tent? Exactly. So he lost the popular vote. 
He didn't win the majority of districts in Ontario, but somehow, according to a strange point system adopted by the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party, Doug Ford, the former city councillor in Toronto, former mayoral candidate and, and brother of former mayor Rob Ford, who was, might have been the most chaotic mayor in Toronto's history, is now leader of the Progressive Conservative Party in Ontario and uh, in a position to become the next Premier of Ontario. Um, WTF, Ryan? I think the hashtag is DOFO, D-O-F-O. I think I've seen that. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's a surprise to say Doug Ford was not my choice. I was actually very excited about having a relatively young, elegant, Harvard-educated, successful person who was a woman and a mother who had run uh, a successful business, who had been involved in establishing some charities at philanthropic engagement, and quite frankly, who came from a political dynasty, because I'm still a monarchist at heart. So I wanted Carolyn Mulroney to win. I was totally fine with... um, yeah. <laughs> I was totally fine with Christine Elliott as well. I was very surprised the day, actually it was a week ago yesterday, when Ford won. But, you know, so uh, I'm, all that to say, I'm going to make the case for Doug Ford, or at least explain how he might actually have a path here. I think that we have to remember that Ontario voters do have quite a bit to be upset about. The economy's not great. They've had one government in power for, I believe, 15 years. Doug Ford, who is not my cup of tea, he also is not Donald Trump. One of the differences is this, this form of economic nationalism and even potentially some of the racial stuff. Doug Ford doesn't go for any of that. You know, he is probably more successful among minority communities in Etobicoke and in Scarborough than we can appreciate. So there's no racial, there's no racist tinge to Doug Ford or to Ford Nation. He will translate extremely well in the north. The northern Ontario ridings, you know, he'll be just fine up there. The other place that he's going to be really just fine is the blue-collar, factory, Rust Belt-type places. You know, he's going to be able to go to Windsor, to Sarnia, to Brockville, all these places where the factories have basically left. And, you know, my wife grew up in Brockville. I think Brockville had five, six, seven large factories when she was growing up there. They're all gone. So he'll be able to go to Hamilton. He'll go to the lunchroom of the plant. He'll put on a hard hat and he'll actually fit in. And he'll actually relate to those voters. So he changes the game. You know, like it's a totally different chessboard than it would have been against the other two. I, I don't think he'll win for sure. He's high risk. So he's a high event candidate. He might completely self-destruct. You know, we saw a few comments earlier in the campaign where he said things that just made me shake my head. But after that... He actually was, this is the difference between Doug Ford today and the Doug Ford we all expected. He actually is, does have a form of message discipline. Like he really is focused on how regular people talk and regular people's issues. There's nothing sophisticated about his approach. He doesn't use four syllable words. You know, he, Paul Wells had a, a comment about it that everyone expects him to be like a Russian bear at a circus riding a bicycle. And if he performs anything better than that, it's a shock. But I think what he's actually saying is expectations are so low among the chattering classes or people like us. So I certainly am nervous about this as a conservative. I see a lot of ways that this could go wrong. But I think to just categorically laugh him off 
or to try to compare him to this white nationalist um, economic nationalist movement that we're seeing in the states is also not true so we'll see i mean if i if i'm trying to think of an exact opposite of kathleen Wynne, it's doug ford i don't think anybody should underestimate doug ford and and not simply just because he's doug ford um i mean he is a he is a recognizable name and i'm, I'm not i mean i'm not an expert on, on ontario politics but i have been following ontario politics politics a little bit and i have been following the polls a little bit uh and Kathleen Wynne's liberals are incredibly unpopular. So it, it seemed to me that regardless of who won the Ontario PC party leadership, that there was a chance, uh, a big chance that whoever won, uh, even though it looked like the party was about to implode when Patrick Brown resigned or was kicked out, um, it, they could be the next premier of Ontario. Um, I think you're right. Um, you know, the chances of, of Doug Ford imploding during the election campaign. Uh, I mean, he is a chaotic uh, chaotic politician. He is uh, trying to, from what I from what I can see, trying to ride, ride a uh, an unwieldy populist wave uh, that could implode midway or numerous times on the way. Yeah. Uh, but then again, he could implode and still become premier of Ontario. I mean, the, the liberals yeah. are just so deeply unpopular right now. Well, uh, he opens up whole new vulnerability for the liberals to exploit and for the NDP to exploit. Yeah. But he also brings in completely different strengths. So. All of a sudden, I would say the NDP has to worry about that Rust Belt, you know, the the Golden Horseshoe, the Sarnia, London, Hamilton area, places like that. He also changes the game in 416 ridings, which is just weird, because if you were a win, you would have thought those are pretty safe. But I don't know how well he'll translate in places like Ottawa and all the French ridings. I mean, in in the part of the province where Derek Fildebrandt came, came from, he'll be just fine. So it will be interesting. It's... You know, I still don't think they've taken the crown for crazy politics, but they're fighting for it. And this, this campaign, which essentially they're in already, um, as an observer and a fan of politics, this is going to be great. We're going to take a quick break right now to tell you about our sponsor this week, ATB Financial. All right. Now, full disclosure, I work for ATB, but I think that makes me, positions me uniquely to talk about this. So I have a question for you guys. Do either of you bank with ATB? No, I don't. You do not. Ryan? No, I do not. Okay, well, listen, guys, there's a really great product at ATV called the No Fee All-In Account, and it is a, it's supposed to be a digital bank account. Does that sound interesting to you guys? Do you guys do your banking online? So does that mean you can access your bank from a computer? <laughs> does that mean I don't have to bring my little booklet in and have the, like, oh balance God. written? No, I haven't done that in I, was just gonna I, I, I have a ledger that's, like, twice the size of my laptop. Yeah, well, that's not going to work. This is for... Can I plug that in the internet? This is an account that if you do all of your banking online, paying bills, you know, sending e-transfers, that sort of thing, you will not pay a monthly fee. In fact, it's designed to keep you out of the branch. So if you go into the branch and conduct your business, you get dinged. But if you do it all yourself, you get no uh, no bank fees at all. And the nice thing about it is it actually connects uh, a line of credit to your account if you qualify. So you can do all your banking online, no fee, and you have a fabulous line of credit. And I never actually have to talk to another human being. Never. In fact, we don't want you talking. I don't want either of you talking to any of my colleagues at ATB. Well, that sounds great. Thank you, ATB. You can find out more at atb.com slash no fee. And now back to the show. So you want to be a candidate with our own Ryan Hasman. Ryan, what are we talking about today? You mean the S-Y-W-T-B-A-C? Just rolls off the tongue. It does. Yeah, like any good acronym. 
I'm going to do one more sort of foundational piece before we get too practical. And after this, it will be focused a little bit more on the practicalities. But one is, and this is not my idea. This is something that I've, you know, that's been established in training and other sources have reinforced it. But that at the core, a candidate has only three jobs. Now, I don't mean to suppose that everybody's campaign for every level of government is like a presidential campaign with 2,000 staff. Of course, sometimes you have to do what you have to do. But there really are only three things that the candidate is best positioned to. Other people can do them, and the candidate can do other things, but in terms of the best use of their time. And those three come down to three things. Voters, volunteers, and money. So there are a lot of things that go into being a candidate for any level, whether it's municipal, school board, federal leadership, anything in between. However, there are these three jobs that really the best person to do it in, even better than, say, their spouse or some celebrity endorsement, and it's those three jobs. So as a candidate, everything that you do, well, I guess as a human being, everything that you do costs either time, energy, or resources. When you're thinking of what should you be focusing on, try to, if you can't focus specifically on those three jobs, try to do things that relate to those three. So for example, under what is not your job, and I'm using, let's use a provincial nomination as kind of our baseline, but this, this applies to other things as well. So when you're interested in running for a nomination for a major party, there are things such as negotiating with your riding association selection committee on the rules and on the dates, there's designing a logo and your literature piece. There could be booking venues or reaching out to people to do house parties. You know, none of that stuff you are the best person to, to do. Sometimes you have to do it, but you're not the best person to be worrying about that. Certainly your job would be recruiting volunteers, voter engagement, which I guess I've already said. So what does that mean? Doors, phone, digital, to some degree doing the literature, just not finding the actual printer asking for money voters voters volunteers money a gray area now i would say is things like social media i don't think that's a gray area at all i think you as a well maybe as a candidate it's a bit of a gray area if you get elected you should stay away from that stuff and let your staff handle it but if you it, so in, in your sort of three three-dimensional context here if you can find the volunteers to manage that piece you should let them do that the social media piece. Yeah, and so I, 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 I halfway agree with you on things like back end, maybe even on posting, on scheduling things, you know, scheduling submissions. Yes. There is this base authenticity that social media provides. So done well, it can be a great window into a candidate. Done poorly, you're completely right. It could be terrible. So voters don't like, especially at something like a provincial nomination. I guess that's the thing. Social media really is kind of irrelevant to a provincial nomination. Once you're an MLA, it's different. Or, or once you've you've earned the nomination and you know you're running. Because at that point, the voters that you're focused on is the larger population. Yeah, and they're paying attention. In a nomination, in any given riding, there might be 500 people, a thousand people. So you're, but I would say that somewhere in between is the the right solution. But the focus, the lens, is voters. So like, if you're in social media arguing with other partisans. You're forgetting about the voters. But if you're providing a transparency or a authenticity to your voters, then it could be good. Yeah. Uh, the same thing with correspondence. 
you know, when I, when I ran in the general election, we actually got a lot by email. It might have changed now. People didn't want to think it was a staff person doing it. On the other hand, I couldn't spend all my day crafting email responses. So my team would work with me to get some answers, and they would know how to respond. Sometimes I would approve it. Sometimes they would if it was basic stuff. The, you talk about the voters and money piece and volunteers all being important, but in order to do a lot of this stuff that needs to be done, what's the strategy for getting volunteers? Like I, I like I was going to ask you, what's the most important thing? Mm-hmm. But I feel like depending on the time of day, each one of those things is the most important thing. How, well, how do you find people to help you raise money and reach voters? So there's two sources in my experience of your team, of the people who care. One is the people who care about you. The other is the people who care about politics. So my, you know, I'm fortunate to have lived here my whole life. When I was running, I have a large group of friends and family who came down. It was their first time doing anything political. I remember my Uncle John building signs in the back office. You know those big signs that you mm-hmm. put in with the rebar? He had never built signs before, but he's a carpenter, and it was amazing. The other side, though, is people that you really don't know until you get involved. And so you need to go and show up. If you're running for the NDP nomination in any riding other than Edmonton Strathcona, <laughs> uh, <laughs> then go down and you know just meet people. Because there are this category of weirdos, like the three of us, who just believe in the political process and are looking for a way to get involved, and they're looking for a candidate. I guess the other thing to remember is that your volunteers are also voters. Mm-hmm. So as a candidate, you always have to, you can't fly off the handle. Right. Even when you're in a safe space like your campaign office. Yeah. I feel like that would be really stressful. Not yeah, that, there not are you're, moments. You're not a fly off the handle kind of guy. Well, actually, definitely there are moments. And so um, what we did to manage me was we would build in some time for reflection and recharge. And I'm almost a maximum extrovert. So there are probably candidates out there who aren't as extroverted as me who do really need that. But you're right in the, the core point that you're never off. You never get to be grumpy. You never get to just be, you know, <laughs> a jerk because that engagement with a volunteer or a voter, they will remember that. And so, um, you know, and not to be too grandiose, if you're running a nomination, you might only have five or six people helping you. Right. Mm-hmm. But you have to be nice to them. Mm-hmm. So... The, and the other thing is these three really are all the same thing. You can't be going to people for donations if you haven't shown an interest in cultivating their support otherwise or just listening to them. So all of this works together. Where do you even start? By bribing your family? <laughs> well, you know, if you have a spouse, if you have a partner, if you have kids, it definitely is something you need to think about. I would recommend, and we've mentioned this on the podcast before, for whatever level of office you're considering running, reach out to someone who's in that role now or was mm-hmm. recently and just ask them to meet. Politicians love meeting with people and they love telling their stories about their nominations and their election battles and their accomplishments. But ask for the real picture because it's very rewarding and it's a privilege, but it definitely comes with a cost. And so I think of someone, and I don't know her well, but Sarah Chan, has her life is probably different in many ways than it would have been if her husband didn't serve as mayor. So... I would love to know how has the experience been for her? Not just her specifically, but people like that. Because you, when one of you is in the role, you're both in the role, especially as you get into higher office. Mm-hmm. And even today in 2018, people expect the spouse to be fully participating, fully engaged. And it's odd if they're not. Often they're not, but it is a bit weird. And you wonder why. And the other thing is it is not a fun life. So, or sorry, I guess I should 
be more specific. It can be a very difficult life. If you're traveling from far away, mm-hmm. you're away from your family a lot. Now, if you're running for city council, that's not really the case. Yeah. But let me tell you, city councilors, if you put in their salary by the hour, $15 minimum wage, you probably look good. Yeah. They are always doing things. Like Andrew Knack is always. He's everywhere. He's, oh, man. He's, he's a cyborg, right? Like he's, he's powered by something other than biology. And you if, if you're listening to this, Andrew, please yeah. let us know. Yeah. What's your secret? And we think you are. <laughs> you know, and so it's a big, but where do you start? Just show up. Um, we mentioned this before, but if it's a provincial or a federal thing, there are riding associations, they're yeah. doing events, there's pub nights. You know, if you're a conservative type person, you can contact me and I'll point you in the right direction. Both parties have, because both parties need people. They need volunteers. Everyone, every party does. So both the parties I'm involved with will do pub nights. They'll do meet and greets. Just start showing up. I mean, it's really hard to swoop in and just take something over. You have to really understand. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the, the point you made about contacting the MLA, I mean, even if, if you're not thinking about running for a nomination or maybe you're thinking about in the future, maybe not the next election, but in a future election you want to run, and you, uh, you know, you have a, an MLA in your constituency that the whose party you want to run for, call them up and ask them, you know, ask them what it what it's like, and ask them if you can get involved. Absolutely, um, they'll be thrilled. I mean, outside of election periods, I mean, normal people don't usually get involved in uh, in in the political process in terms of the party process on the constituency level. Um, so I'm sure your your local MLA or or an MLA, not even doesn't have to be your local MLA, but an MLA that you support would be thrilled. Yeah. To, uh, to get to to help you get involved and um, what one of the things I love about election work on election campaigns is the people who just come out of the woodwork during the election how they're not involved you have people who are not involved or really super engaged in the political process in between elections but when an election is called they show up and they're the sign person they love doing signs or they love making phone calls or or they love bringing dinner into the campaign office yeah. and they're just these people and, and and they're not really part involved in the party they just they love working on campaigns and love yeah. participating in democracy and i love that it's so cool to see normal people involved in politics yeah and it's it's like you said it's you don't have to be obsessed with policy it's sometimes it's just being around the energy of a campaign so as much as this is you know so you so you want to be a candidate people who are listening you should consider volunteering Absolutely. even if it's just hanging out and sorting stuffing envelopes or whatever it's yeah. it's really yeah, interesting absolutely going door knocking i think yeah. everybody everyone should have have to uh, have to go door canvassing with, oh, uh, with a candidate so hard it's it's hard but it can be you know it can be tiring we can be incredibly rewarding i, th- I think it's pretty cool yeah um yeah, for sure. you, even you, when you get the door slammed in even, your face. even when you get the door slammed i mean it's it's you know, it's pretty rare, though. Honestly, it, it, it is, is pretty it rare. Is. And well, I've door knocked I, 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 for liberal candidates out in rural Alberta, and it's not as rare as you'd think. Well, I door knocked as a conservative. Most, most, most people are polite. <laughs> yeah. I door knocked as a conservative in places like Garneau. And even well, that's then, the same experience. Yeah. Just I must, around. You know, I must say the fact that you're actually physically there yeah. means most people treat you at least politely. Yeah. Most. Yeah. But you're right about the coming out of the woodwork. I mean, we had. In my 2011 campaign, well over 400, I think 475 different volunteers. I didn't know them all. Wow. It was amazing. And a lot of it is what you just described, Dave. Like these people, once every four years, they just show up and they say, what can I do? Or they have some job, particularly the sign people who I love, because there's nothing glamorous about that. It's winter. You're driving rebar into the ground with a sledgehammer. You're doing it overnight. But it's just, it really is amazing. And some of the deepest friendships I have comes from political campaigns because it's such a intense experience. So if you take my three vote, my three jobs 
and rewind. What should you be doing now? Well, find a way to get involved, but do something. If you're thinking about running, do something that relates to those three jobs. So the first thing you do if you want to be a candidate should probably not be hiding out in the back room building the signs. <laughs> God bless those guys. You need them. But if you're thinking about running someday and you show up at a campaign, ask to go door knocking, ask to work the phones. Yeah. Don't, you know, do something related to where you want to end up. Then over the next weeks, I'll try to deep dive more on those three topics and provide some specifics, some plans, you know, things that we've done or seen or heard of other people doing. And I think that's probably it for my big picture groundwork. Now we're going to open up the old mailbag. Adam, what do we have? We have a question from Nate Glubish. He wants you guys to unpack your thoughts on whether the Alberta party is more likely to split the vote on the left or the right. He says that he believes a case can be made for more splitting on the left than the right. What do you guys think? Well, I don't believe in vote splitting, so I don't think they're going to split the vote. Uh, I mean, whether they're going to take more votes from the left or the right, I I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. We're not even quite clear what what impact the Alberta party is going to have in the next election or where they're going to have an impact. We have a party whose three MLAs are from Calgary. Their leader is from Edmonton. Um, it's not clear who's going to be running for them yet. Um, I'm not sure that I'm not, I'm not sure we can definitively say that they're going to take votes from the left or the right. I think it's really too early to tell. I mean, I think that, 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 the Alberta party and in terms of some of the positions their MLAs have taken, I think in terms of, of the, some of the positions formerly to Greg Clark took, I mean, they were definitely positioning themselves as being kind of the, uh, the, the alternative to the UCP in terms of being a, a more moderate kind of a progressive conservative party. Um, so in terms of the left or the right, I don't really know where they fit right now. Yeah, I think the answer to this question depends on who's answering the question. Partisans of the NDP seem to want to paint the Alberta party as just another conservative party. I know many conservative party activists who consider the Alberta party just another branch of the NDP. So it kind of, this may be a cynical way to look at it, but it depends on how your, where your leverage points are. So if you are opposed to social conservatism, then this is a party that's competing with the NDP. If you really just don't want to see Jason Kenney in office, well, I would think the most effective thing to do would be to consolidate the vote around Rachel Notley. But however, if you reject social conservatism, but you want a fiscal, a fiscally conservative party, then maybe the Alberta party is for you. So it remains to be, remains to be seen. I think with a leader like Mandel, there are some inherent strengths and some inherent weaknesses. He's going to play differently in the sort of Anthony Henday region of Edmonton than he will in Brooks or in Medicine Hat. So it remains to be seen, but I agree with you, Nate, that I think, in my opinion, it seems to be more about splitting the anti-UCP vote. So I guess we'll find out. Our next question is from Mountain Ted. In which way would you expect the debate about rural crime and self-defense limitations to impact the coming campaigns for 2019. Mountain Ted is a great name, Yeah, by the way. It's probably, that's Ted Morton, right? I, I, I don't think it's actually Ted Morton. <laughs> that, that'd be, that would be Frederick Lee, right? That's right. For, for those of you who are familiar with obscure Alberta political history from a few years ago. I think that watching the rural crime dispute is, da- or commenting on it is dangerous for city people. And I would include all three of us on that because I don't think we understand. I don't understand. 
you know, the idea that that you could call the police, but know that they're an hour away Mm -hmm. and what that does to your psyche or your sense of security here in St. Albert once, um, one of us, I won't say who probably didn't lock the truck door. So in the morning we came outside and the truck doors were open and all the toonies and loonies were gone. But because it's St. Albert, so we called the police just to report it. Because it's St. Albert, an actual armed police officer was at our house in like 10 minutes. Yeah. And we kind of felt sheepish, like, okay, you know, we didn't need you to come. But she was here and she looked around and the co- the kids thought it was great. So I have this basic sense that the police are there when I need them. And so, of course, I don't need to arm myself. Like, of course, that's a bizarre concept. But I am cognizant that I need to be careful that because I don't know what it's like to live in Drayton Valley or a place like that. So how does it play? I, I don't think it's good for the government. I don't think it's good for the left-wing party. Uh, I think, if anything, it potentially could slightly help us because our supporter base correlates to gun rights, to property rights, to all these themes that tend to motivate voters on the right more than on the left. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, of how this will play in the next election, I mean, I don't... The UC, I mean, according to all the polling we've seen, the UCP is so far ahead in rural Alberta um, that it might not, This even if this weren't an issue, it might not make a difference for the NDP in some rural areas. Uh, I mean, I do think that there's, I mean, we've seen politicians kind of bound, talk about statistics about crime increasing in rural Alberta, and we've had Statistics Canada information and, and an RCMP report come out. But regardless of statistics and how they're manipulated, I think there's a real perception that that crime has increased and a real perception of danger in rural Alberta. Um, whether it's true or not, I think it's it, it's how people how people are perceiving the situation. In terms of s- self defense limitations, uh, this is an issue that that really bothers me. Uh, firearms are tools and not weapons, and you know I live in an urban area, but I've taken the firearm safety course, uh, and it was drilled into my head that firearms are tools. Uh, you know, yeah. for hunting or for, for shooting recreationally. These are not weapons, and it really bothers me that we're having a discussion and that some right-wing columnists in, in, in post-media newspapers are openly talking about uh, uh, using weapons as, as self-defense, as, as something that's okay. Um, I think there's a, you know, there seems to be a real, a real issue around, uh, around policing in rural Alberta, and I think a lot of that has to do with government funding for the RCMP, and that's, uh, you know, I mean, the government has a responsibility to provide, you know, to to protect public safety yeah. and uh, and i think that's a real thing and i mean we saw the ndp do is do something about that this week um there was a, a vote for and i think it was an appropriations bill um that they're going to be increasing funding for our cmp and for they worked with municipalities on this so hopefully we will be, we'll be able to see uh some some positive results i think this is kind of a, a, a non-partisan issue it's a it's a it's a public safety issue. So yeah. um, regardless of how the next election turns out, hopefully we can see, uh, see some improvements. Is it a, is it a case for or against Alberta having its own provincial police force? Do you think? Well, I was going to mention that. So we are technically like a customer of the RCMP, the provincial government. Um, the RCMP are here on our request by, you know, by our choice. We, we outsource in some ways policing to the national police organization. I think that it is worth having that discussion and probably to the UCP's advantage again. That has been something that was in the legacy parties platforms at different times, certainly leadership candidates. I think that people need to feel safe. So I, I share probably more of your feeling about it than many conservatives would. I, 
I'm not a big gun guy. Um, I don't have my pal. I think you do. Yeah. Both Dave and I have our pal. Yeah, I've we, got we, my we, our pal we, too. We, we took the course together. Yeah. And I, I, I courses do. together. The two the two small L liberals <laughs> have I their have their gun licenses. I get teased by my buddies about this. But that said, the solution here, the root cause is people need to feel safe. And if that's a resource issue, this this UCP member sitting here has no problem campaigning on massively increasing the resources towards policing. So the other thing that policing can do, and I, I actually spent time in the minister's office of public safety, so our CMP was part of our portfolio. Um, there's a huge role for effective community policing in the prevention of crime and in engaging youth at risk. So I love the programs to have officers in schools, not because of the gun on their hip, but because of the role model, because of the relationship. It's in the best interest of both sides to see the community or to see the police as people and as members of the community, not as sort of the opposition or this um, ominous um, uniform with a gun. Yeah. And so... When I say we need more police and more resources, that's a holistic statement. I think rural high schools should have police officers. And yeah, you hear stories about RCMP in northern communities where there's two officers for like a four-hour drive around. And it's crazy. Of course, bad things are going to happen. So hopefully everybody agrees and this is something that they can either increase resources to or demand more from the RCMP. I don't have an opinion on a provincial police force, but if they don't fix it, then that's the direction that this is going to go. All right. Our next question is a question about populist politics from Tony Nikonchuk. And he's asking, when your opponent, your political opponent is, say, Donald Trump, and they can literally just craft whatever reality they want, make statements that are verifiably false, and pay no political price for it, how on earth do you compete with that? And so I think Tony might be anticipating... Or, or might be conflating Donald Trump with Jason Kenney, and I know you take umbrage with that, Ryan. But Yeah, I do. But focusing on maybe the underlying thread of populism and dissatisfaction and maybe even anger, this is something that I think a lot of us who are either conservative or political really need to give some deep thought to. So, uh, I couldn't be more appalled by Donald Trump. I lose my mind about him every day. But it's hard to dispute that there's something he's tapping into when he received half of the popular vote. Or what was it, 42 million votes. And so people like me who are living a comfortable life maybe need to be careful that not everyone has experienced the opportunities that we've had. Not everyone sees the world how we have. And anger is easier. It's easier to stoke. It's easier to create the other. It's easy to distort facts. Everyone has cognitive bias. You know, you can see that if a person was motivated and brilliant in their own evil genius way, you can see how this happens. And this is why these types of leaders, you know, he's following the same pattern that a lot of the um, strong men of other parts of the world have followed, discrediting the institutions that provide a counterbalance, discrediting the idea of objective truth. And so it's going to flame out. I posted something on my Facebook a couple weeks ago by Jonah Goldberg in the National Review. Even the National Review has been fighting with itself about this. But basically he made the point that Trumpism specifically is not an ideology. It's a reaction and it's chaos and it's selfishness. And so um, hopefully it flames out. And yeah, it's, it is so infuriating when he can post 
and say things that are just absurdly untrue and it doesn't hurt them at all. And to share a bit of my own frustration, it upsets me that people who are part of my political tent are still buying it hook, line and sinker. And it, you know, I posted a story about the evangelical church and Donald Trump and there was a lot of truth in that. Like, I don't understand it. Maybe we should bring an actual Trump supporter on sometime. But I think it's probably wrong to assume Doug Ford and Jason Kenney are the same. Because, for example, some of the core pieces of Trump nationalism is economic nationalism, so getting rid of free trade, and racial nationalism, which is explicitly the opposite of Jason Kenney and Doug Ford. So what do you think of this, Dave? No, I think... uh, uh, I think the comparisons i mean especially the the jason comparing jason kenny to doug ford or pardon me jason kenny well jason kenny to doug ford and jason kenny to donald trump i think it's it's not a great comparison um jason kenny is a professional politician he was a parliamentarian in ottawa for for 20 years um he comes from a background with the canadian taxpayers federation uh doug ford is a chaos machine donald trump is a wrecking ball uh you know, who was elected to essentially blow up the system. Um, I, so I think they're, they're, they come from at least, I'm not totally convinced Donald Trump is actually conservative, but at least Doug Ford and Jason Kenney at least come from two different streams of conservatism. Uh, but that said, I think that they're trying to tap into this very similar angry populist bent. And I think a lot of the language that Jason Kenney uses intentionally, I mean, he's a smart political operator um, and he's, he's, knows what he's doing i think that they're trying to tap into this in, into the same political resentment that populist resentment but i do think they're fundamentally different different politicians and and this goes into into st- stuff we've, we've talked about before and we we're talking about a little bit offline about you know which politicians would be comfortable walking into the uh, most comfortable walking into the legion out in evansburg and having a beer you know doug ford would probably fit right in and yeah. be able to talk with the you know salt of the earth people yeah. jason kenney might struggle a little bit to have to have those kind of conversations with you know normal mm. people who are outside the political and ideological sphere. I mean, you can't sit down and talk about Ronald Reagan and Thomas Friedman at the uh, or um, or what's his name? The what's who's the other libertarian? Uh, um, von Mies, von Mies, oh, Mises, von way. Mises. There was the guy who ran for president in um, the Reagan, the Gold, Goldwater. Oh yeah. yeah, you can't really walk into the Legion in Evansburg and talk about. Goldwater. The irony of all this is Donald Trump. It would Trump, be just weird. Donald Trump is like the iconic Manhattan billionaire playboy. Like if you were even drawing up a populist hero, he's the opposite. Like he just he's broken every system. And part of what offends me about him and Doug Ford is as a as a as someone who's been in the political system, I know the parameters of what's appropriate. And so when these guys break it, it breaks my staffer brain. <laughs> like you can't say that. I got phoned by the PMO about things that are way more normal than that. You know, so he just, he drives my staffer brain crazy. He drives my elitist brain crazy. Like Trump has broken the system. Yeah. I think if, if we saw Jason Kenney or politicians like Jason Kenney attacking institutions like, you know, (laughs) the, it's, it sounds funny to call them an institution, but like the Edmonton journal, like attacking journalism and journalists and calling things fake news then I think this argument, we could argue that it's similar, but it, he's not doing that. And that's the red line. Yeah. Th- that is the you, fundamental You difference. talked about the strong man. He's not behaving like no. Putin. Jason Kenney, that's exactly it, is a supporter of the institutions. He's a student of them. He's a politician, but he 
never just says these trigger words. He doesn't he doesn't round down to the lowest common denominator or appeal to people's base interests. And that's that's what upsets me about the angry populism is because it is easier to do. It's easier to stoke our anger and blame the other. Kenny doesn't do that. Kenny spent 10 years trying to get new Canadians to feel like they're part of our system. So, you know, Tony, I share your apprehension about some things. I don't even think you're trying to lump them all together. But I think that the antidote to this Trump style is in the long run, maintaining our principles and being good human beings. I know that sounds cliche, but it's something that used to be assumed. And if you watch the Sunday morning talk shows on all the American networks, it's certainly not true anymore, but I think it'll come back. And Kenny is exactly an image of that. He's not everybody's cup of tea, but he is not an autocrat. He's not a racist. In fact, he's the opposite of those things. So... Our last question, Dave, who's this last question from? It's from Marie Aiken on Twitter. So Marie wants to know, what are your fellows' opinions on the revenue renovation campaign? Is that what it is? Yeah, revenue reno campaign. Public Interest Alberta uh, launched a campaign this past or last week um, calling for the government to reassess its uh, its revenue streams. It's kind of the eternal problem facing governments in Alberta is our total over-reliance on, uh, on revenue from uh, natural resource royalties as they go up and down and up and down as we've seen now. Um, so this group is calling on, uh, on the government to look at alternatives. So I, I just, I'm, I, I can see, I can see Ryan here smiling. So I'm going to get in here before he does. Uh, I think it's, I think it's something that, that is desperately needed in Alberta and something that we, we need to talk about more. And I mean, we talk about it a lot, but it's something that the government, regardless of the party actually needs to act on. Cause we, 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 we are on this, revenue roller coaster as Jim Prentice called it and as Rachel Notley calls it where we depend on revenues from uh, oil and gas royalties uh, that are totally unpredictable to fund the day-to-day operations of government and we do this and we can we do this and we complain about having the largest deficit in the country uh, and then we also in the same breath brag about how our taxes are the lowest in the country. Um, I think that one of the ways, one one of the things that eventually Alberta is going to have to do, if it's not going to be the NDP that do it, or it's not going to be Jason Kenney uh, who does it, depending on the, the results of the 2019 election, uh, we're eventually going to have to try to figure out uh, figure out um, uh, the revenue stream and how to create a you know fiscally sustainable government in this province, because the uh, the gravy train, as one politician said in a different context, is not going to last forever. Yeah, I concur with a lot of what you said. I think that something has to give. Alberta is among the highest spenders per capita on social programs. Our spending on healthcare and education is, if it's not the highest in the country, it's always among the highest. And I was, I would have loved for us to have seen the Lougheed vision of putting away a fairly high share I mean, this is what the Heritage Savings Trust Fund is supposed to be for. So that we'd have something that generates revenue every year that we can balance out those troughs and valleys and mountain peaks. And so I concur with all of that. However, I just want you guys in the public interest of Alberta to know that I know what you're doing. <laughs> now, all is fair in love, war, and politics. I'm not suggesting that you're doing something illegal. But this is clearly the case of NDP allies floating things that are absolute 
third rails in Alberta politics. Because the NDP, to her credit, and Rachel Notley's government, has been very clear on things like a sales tax. She's smart enough to know that it's poison. So her position, and she can maintain it, is no, no way, not going to do it. She doesn't need to. Her allies. And the public interest, Alberta. Nice name, by the way. I'll give you credit for that. It's a great name. But, you know, they are NDP activists. Now, I'm not suggesting we don't do this, too. Of course we do. But they're floating these things, waiting to see what happens. And if the test balloon pops, Rachel Notley had nothing to do with it. But if people finally, for the first time in, like, Charlie Brown and the football, (laughs) if finally Lucy doesn't pull the football away and they have some polling that shows Albertans are actually open to a sales tax or to higher taxes in general, you watch the NDP start to take these these ideas. So this is this is politics. Like I'm not criticizing the right to do this. It's probably even a good tactic for maintaining the popularity of an incumbent NDP government. I just want you to know, Joel French and your buddies, that I know what you're doing. I see you, and I don't think it's going to work. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producer, Adam Rosenhart, for helping us to put this episode together. Hey, girls. And a huge thank to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. We're a member now, and we stand with many other Alberta-made podcasts, including some solid political podcasts. Last week, we had Leanne, Janelle, and Kyla take over the Dave Berta Show. And if you're looking for other women's political perspectives, you should check out The Broadcast by Trisha Esterbrooks and Alex Zabjek. Visit albertapodcastnetwork.com for the broadcast and all other Alberta Podcast Network shows. Also, we're doing a little contest, so we want you to submit your reviews for the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you leave us a rating and a review up until May 31st, you'll be entered into a draw for fabulous prizes, which we have yet to source, but we promise we'll be rad. And for those of you who've already left reviews, huge thank you. You will be grandfathered in. But here's the trick. If you've left a review, you need to email podcast at daveberta.ca with a screenshot of your review so we know who the heck you are. Prove your legitimacy. This is as close to the birther movement that Dave Berta will get. That was very Donald Trump. Awesome, Adam. Uh, Sad. Sad, (laughs) sad. Uh, You can also send us your feedback or ask us any questions you have for our next episode. You can get us on Twitter at at Dave Berta or on the Dave Berta Facebook page, uh, or you can email us at podcast at daveberta.ca. Of course, a big thanks once again to last episode's guest host, Uh, Kyla Fisher, Janelle Morin, and Leanne Bell, who did a great job. In fact, I don't know if we should have them on again because the feedback was a little too good. I don't know, guys. I think that might be a problem. Two of those women are your wives. (laughs) Well, well, I I think it's safe to say that as long as they're willing, that uh, that they'll uh, they'll definitely uh, make an appearance again on the uh, on the Day Birder podcast. It was a great show. Yeah, we really loved it. And thanks for all your great feedback on that show. We really appreciated it. So we'll be back with more discussion on Alberta politics in the week of April 9th. We're taking a bit of a break for the Easter long weekend. Thanks for listening.